Father, we, <coughs> we ask that you would take these moments as we just still our hearts and, and listen. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be here. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to work in our lives. And I do pray for, for all who have come from whatever place, whether it's a place of joy or maybe you're, you're just exhausted and tired and, or you've come and you are really wrestling with a fear or there's been some loss this week in your life in some way. Or you're coming with questions and you maybe haven't even been in church for a while. Jesus, thank you. How welcoming you are that you invite all of us to come before your Father. So we pray, Spirit of God, speak to our hearts. Thank you, blessed Trinity, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we asked uh, um, many of you if you would just take time to submit a nickname on the app, because we've been looking at what's in a name, and we looked at Mary of Magdala the week before, which is a person's name who's associated with a place that distinguished her because that name was so common. Well, this week we're looking at nicknames, and I hope you had a chance to put that on there and someone is able to look at it. Uh, There's all kinds of nicknames for all kinds of reasons, and some are tied to an event or shared experience. And so one of them that was submitted, of a number of them, was Silver Cloud. Silver Cloud, are you here? Uh, Where, where? Oh, 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 I'm, I'm kind of, okay. One of my deer hunting partners was one of my dad's friends, and he thought I was special and positive, plus my hair was super white, so he nicknamed me Silver Cloud. There are other names that are more animal-related nicknames, right? person who says, my name was Moose. I'm a big guy, always have been. And I, I, Moose, are you here? Ah, there we go. <laughs> Lady Hawk. Who in the... Lady Hawk sitting next to you? I used to be able to look really far away. I was very far-sighted. My first motorcycle was a Honda Hawk, and we communicated through our helmets using CB radios, hence my handle, Lady Hawk. I, Lady Hawk here? I, this one I'm really curious. You won't admit it if you did? Okay. <laughs> Murdog. Who knows why? Mike Murray's called Murdog. But anyway. My brothers called me Bacon or Boo Boo Bear when I was young. Just the name he gave me. And there's what I call kind of shortened names, kind of terms of endearment, where you kind of just say a part of the name or, or something like that. And, and they just you know, kind of stick, like Rach for Rachel. Makes sense. Ben, Benny, Benner were easy nicknames for my name, so it writes Benjamin. I was called it as a kid, and it just stuck. Mark is called Mork. Someone couldn't say it, I don't know. Just what people call them, Jules or the Jewel, because it's a variation of my name, Julie, and I guess my family think I am a gem. Finally, there are those, those um, names that actually have some spiritual significance to them. One person responded and said, um, my name was, it was infant baptized. I was Carol, the feminine of Charles, expected to be a boy, nicknamed Peewee, because I was skinny, a little runt due to poor health. God more recently told me Carol means joyous song. And that he dances over me, and that he danced over me when I was born, and Jesus promises to dance with me on the streets of gold. I cannot wait. 
That's cool. Did you know that Jesus liked to dish out nicknames? You ever come across some of these guys who, one of the former pastors here, John Vauder, was a guy who loved to throw out nicknames. There's just, you know, certain guys who like to just kind of give you nicknames. Well, Jesus was that kind of guy, and and he would at times, I I can just hear him going, hey, Rock and uh, Sons of Thunder, let's go, I want to kind of meet for a second alone. Those were Peter the Rock and, and James and John, the inner three. And, and so he, I think he kind of liked to give out nicknames. And, and so what we want to look at specifically today is, is the guy named James who was given a nickname. We're not going to look at both James and John, although they were both called by this nickname, but I'm going to put the name up there and I want you to, to, um, stand for a moment because we're going to read scripture together. I want you to stand before we actually read the scripture. I want you to turn to the person next to you and pronounce that name. Okay, okay. it's just a short name. It's not that long. And we want to give it a shot. Okay, it means son. That's where you see like you see the name Barnabas. It was the idea of son of encouragement. So you get this B-A. I don't know why it's B-O-A, to be honest with you, in the beginning. But here, I'm going to help you say it so when we read the scripture, we can say it together. In the Greek, it's Banergas. Banerges. See it? Banerges. Okay, now you got Banerges. Now, if you didn't learn anything else today, when it comes to trivia, you're going to say, oh yeah, James Banerges. Okay, let's read the scripture. Found in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And his brother John. To them he gave the the name, it shouldn't be theme, but the name Benergus, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, if we were in a play, you'd go, like that one, you'd say Judas. But anyway, you may be seated. Thank you. So what's in the name, especially in the nickname Banergus, son of thunder, which in many ways you could today say hotheads, right? That, That might be one way to kind of capsulize that name. We're going to look specifically at James. And so I'm just going to go through kind of some of these places where you find James. So the very first place you find is the calling of James, both James and John, his brother. And we're going to then also attach a lesson to each one of these prominent or one of these uh, places that you find James in Scripture. And we first meet James with his brother. They're fishing with their father, Zebedee. And we find in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, it's, These words, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat. Something of that order tells you something that you need to know there. We'll look at it in a bit. They were preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. 
We're not exactly sure about all the fishing enterprises that were along the sea or the lake of Galilee. But we also know that Simon and Andrew were there near them. And Jesus called them and then called these brothers. And it's more than likely that they maybe could have had two fishing businesses. Or they had kind of a partnership. But we're not really quite sure. But they were they were there next to each other. And they they were fishermen of, of, of a business that had... Um, probably quite a sizable reputation in that area. Uh, that whole lake area was was a fishing industry and was built off that kind of sea lake um, commerce. Capernaum was the place that Jesus was headquartered, but the reason for that is because it was this central roadway between the east and west, and it was also a, a very wealthy kind of growing town at the time. And all four of those guys lived in that Capernaum area along the coast. Levi, who is later named Matthew, which means the gift of God. And if you read the book of Matthew, you'll find there are these long teaching sections. The Sermon on the Mount, for instance, that you don't find in any other book. And since Matthew being a, a tax collector, probably really good at writing things down, one of the gifts he was to Jesus and to the apostles and to you and me was his ability to take and capsulize these long teaching sections of Jesus. But Levi, later named Matthew by Jesus, writes in his gospel account that Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left left the boat and their father and followed him. He's the only one that mentions, and they left their father who's kind of in the boat. And that's an important thing to understand because you don't hear about Peter and Andrew's dad. Zebedee was probably a person of some importance. He was a person who I'm guessing was a very ambitious guy who built that fishing business. And, and you know that he always had some wealth because he had a hired crew. That's just not something you could do unless you had some hired hands. And so the reason they could even leave the way they did dad in the boat, so to speak, is that they had a hired crew. And I just wonder if Peter and Andrew weren't part of that hired crew. So that they're in a position that he goes, yeah, I'll find some of the guys. And obviously he's a lost day of your sons, whatever was going on there. It's also believed that he, um, Zebedee, had some Levitical connections, probably through marriage or somewhere in his lineage, because John, at some point in the Gospels, you find that he has access into the into the temple courts, and since they would have been Levites um, that he had some connection to, he was probably known to some degree by the high priest or those who were close to the high priest. So you have this guy, Zebedee, who is in the boat, and his sons, James and John, leave. But the point that I really want to make in this is that when Christ calls, you follow. We heard Lindsay sharing about how God spoke to her heart. There are times when God speaks to your heart. You sense with conviction, this is one of these important things that I better answer. And that was going on, I think, in James' heart. When Christ calls you to follow, you follow. My guess is they were doing well in the fishing business. Yet there was something in the call of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and what they heard about the kingdom of God that was to come that kind of enraptured their heart. Began to cause them to imagine, maybe my life 
with this rabbi Jesus, maybe there's something I'll become next to him and with him that I might never become without this call. And so they left. Which isn't an easy thing to do, sometimes to leave. It's not easy to reprioritize your life. I know a guy who got a full scholarship to play golf. He ended up playing at the University of Minnesota. And on the team was a guy named Tom Lace. Tom Lace. Help me out. What, Tom? I'm just kidding. Anyway, Tom Lehman. At some point, especially you golfers know, Tom is from Minnesota. He's a former number one ranked golfer with tournament wins, including one major title, 1996 Open Championship. And he's the only golf the only golfer in history to have been awarded the Player of the Year honor on three PGA Tours. Well, back to this guy I was telling you about who played with him at the U of M. He didn't know Jesus at this time, this guy personally, before he went to college, but at one point he felt a call to serve Jesus and to follow Jesus, and through that serving and following Jesus, became an elder at a church at a certain point, and as an elder at the church, it meant reprioritizing things, you know, because the elder board met on Saturday mornings of all times, which is what, prime golfing time? And then if you're going to be a, a good follower of Jesus, you, you come to church and that meets at what time? Sunday mornings for most people, right? And that's usually pretty what? Good golfing time. So I'm going to ask Steve Dick if you just come, because Steve um, is the guy who did this. <clears throat> and so I just wanted to ask you, Steve, because I want to make this real, and I wanted a kind of illustration when I was preparing this. I was thinking about you know leaving something behind and becoming something, reprioritizing. So often we think, was there regret? Was there regret in some of those decisions that you made? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Kevin, that I, I uh, golf was a love of mine at a young age, right? So I started playing when I was 12, and by 14, I was shooting in the mid-70s. Oh, I was under the 70s. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, anyway. That so. was the bio I gave you. <laughs> yeah, right. And it, so it was a love of mine. I was playing all the time in a lot of tournaments, and I definitely had a dream of being a pro golfer. Yeah. Um, and then fast forward to my senior year in, in high school, where, as you said, I, I came to faith went down to the University of Florida, and, and that was the first time down there as I was getting to know God and getting to start that process of hearing something from him <clears throat> that I just got a clear sense that I, that career-wise, golf wasn't it, that I wasn't what I was supposed to do. And he, so he reprioritized my career then, and two other major times, I'd say, when I was a father and then when I was called to serve, as you mentioned. Yeah, and, and uh, as you think about that right now, um, you gave up, you gave up a part of a dream in a sense and you gave up actually commitment of time that you would normally spend there what were the benefits uh, I mean these guys left and probably had no idea what they were walking into right right. well I mean there's no doubt that when you change something that you've been passionate about for a long time there's a little sense of loss right mm-hmm. but what I've found and what's happened what God's done with me is that in each of those things he moved me to there was really cool blessings right in my career for sure and then in my family where I had two young boys at the time who were crying when I was leaving to go play golf when they were little, switching to now, Dad, will you take me to the golf course? Which, that worked out pretty well. That was a good one. That yeah. worked out pretty well. And then, uh, and, then when, and then when I was called to serve, I mean, that, 
I learned some things uh, in the elder board experience I had from a leadership perspective that I would have never learned anywhere else. Right. That you just wouldn't get in sort of regular business leadership. And God's still doing that today. So, I mean, I'm blessed to be part of the high school um, youth group. Small, I'm going to be one of the small groups downstairs here, and that's been really great. And I'm also on the music team, and that's been great as well. Yeah. So, Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. I only bring that up because I, it's, God isn't into killing our dreams necessarily, but he sometimes calls us to leave some things, to reprioritize. He might be speaking to a young dad or mom, or he might be speaking to you in some other facet of your life where he's just saying, you know what, this was great for a season and maybe in a season again. But when Jesus starts to call, what's really amazing is he's calling you to become something. And the lesson that I want to just kind of share on this part is that more important than what you do is who you become. Jesus was calling them to become fisher of people, which meant that their lives would be reoriented in a way that they began to experience some things in their life and who they were that was completely different than what they would have imagined. There's a Dallas Willard who was... Uh, has passed away, but was a professor at, at USC in philosophy and, and was a great Christian writer. He lived in what is called La La Land, L.A., right? And uh, he had this front row seat to ceaseless activity and, and this kind of endless striving in life that he saw all around them of people doing, doing, trying to get more and more. And, and uh, he would address Christ followers at times, and he would say this, which I think is really a powerful sentence, and you might want to even write it down. The most important thing in your life, the most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. It's who you become. And that's what you will take into eternity. Think about that. This whole life is an opportunity for Jesus to call you to places where you become. And I... I don't know if Jesus has been calling you. My guess is there's some of you that you kind of even look through the fall and you're looking at your life and you're saying, you know, here are some activities I can do, but what is Jesus saying? Here's what I want you to do. What, what is he, who does he want you to become? And what are the gains and benefits that you're going to receive by answering that call that you wouldn't? So I just encourage you as we look at what's in the name of James, one of the things is James steps out answers a call, leaves behind some things, which is never easy when you're in that process of reorienting your life, reprioritizing. And then he starts to walk with Jesus to become someone that he never had any idea what he could become. What we do most effectively springs from who we are. It's not the other way around. What we become will influence all that we do. So becoming is really important. And that happens as you listen to Jesus and he looks at you and he maybe points and he maybe he's knocking on your heart going, I want you to pay attention to this conviction because of what I want to lead you into because of what and who you will become. Because of who you become, it's out of that the most important things that you'll ever do happen because it's just a part of your identity and who you are. 
There's the appointment of James, Mark chapter 3. We read this as we started this message, and we read this at the beginning of his message. And I, I like in Mark chapter 3, verse 1, it begins by saying, Jesus went up to a mountainside, called to him those he wanted, which is an interesting little phrase, those he wanted, he had prayed about it. And, and they came to him, and he appointed 12 that they might be, and this is what's so interesting, that he could just sit down and give them lessons, that they might be with him. Time in his presence. Time alone. I know at one point in my life when I was just doing, doing, doing all kinds of activity and Jesus kind of knocked on my heart and he said, you know what, I want you to become something and the way you're going to become what I want you to be is by spending time alone with me. I need you to get into my word. I need you to begin to pray. I need you to take some time where, you're just, where I'm with you. I mean, it was really as clear as could be. It was one on, a, on a summer, a number of years back, where I was, it was that summer, if some of you remember, way a long time ago, <clears throat> it was a drought, and everything was as dry as could be, and I felt that way in my soul, and it was like like Jesus just said, um, you really want to you, you wanna live in, in the kind of a sense of, of my presence where there's life. It only happens if you, if you make the choice to reorient and reprioritize and put me in a place where I can become your spring of life. I need you to spend time with me. So he says, he says this. And then as you, you look at it, I, I read this and it goes, Jesus not only um, called them to be with him, but he, before he called them, he, he spent focused time in prayer. And, and I find this kind of interesting. It, it, we, we hear from the gospel writer Luke. He tells us that one of those days Jesus went out into the hills to pray and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, then he chose and appointed these 12. And there's all kinds of things written about why in the world these 12. But what I want you to understand, this is not something new that a rabbi would come along and, and, and he would be teaching. And Jesus probably was leading in calling a lot of, quote, followers. He could have 80 to 100 of those who are with him. And he went off to pray and he came back. And it's kind of like he kind of says, um, you, you know, that kind of selection process. That's not a new thing. That's, oh, boy, Jesus was doing something really cool and new. No, rabbis did that. They would, they would have a group of followers and, and then they, many of them would, um, have kind of be a leading rabbi who would travel around and when he would travel, he wanted to bring some people with him and those people who he brought with him, um, because things are caught rather than just taught in a classroom, that idea, he would bring them with him and, and the purpose was that their school of thought would continue on. Because when they died, they were hoping that their primary teaching, so a guy named Hillel, one of the rabbis, did that, and his teachings went on, you can see for years, to various disciples. And some actually rose up to be higher in influence than they were. So what Jesus is doing isn't something radically different. They all understood this. And whether the 12, my understanding is that was significantly different because it had some governmental kind of implications with the 12 that were selected in the Old Testament with people would understand but here's what's unusual about the calling of these guys, and specifically, I even like James. Mark chapter 3, 16 to 17. These are the 12 he appointed, and Ulysses, Simon, to me gave the name Peter, and James, son of Zebedee, a son of thunder. What's remarkable about the 12 is that Jesus picked 11 of them are Galilean. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see it's always this kind of pejorative of they're Galileans. It's kind of like they're not from New York, they're not from L.A., they're not from Chicago. They're actually from Shreveport or the hills of Kentucky. 
I, I, seriously. So that's one thing. That's unusual. He wasn't, he was picking some country bumpkins, so to speak. And then he called a bunch of fishermen. Four for sure. There was more than that because he was on that coast, which were, if you want to look at it, they're blue collar jobs. They would have flunked out of the synagogue kind of training that would lead them eventually to, to Jerusalem where they would study under a rabbi. And that was the path that you hoped. Every mom would hope. Even, uh, even a person who's a blue collar mom and their kid, you know, father's got a business, whatever the business would be, their hope and their prayer would be, oh, little Johnny or little Susie, whoever it is, whatever the names are today. Anyway, they would, they would hope that they would go, this little boy, and he would get trained, and they would be memorizing the Old Testament, and the ones who could memorize really well, they went further, and the other ones kind of flunked out if they weren't great in memory. And then those who memorized well, they would begin to do that process, that kind of platonic process, they'd ask questions, and those who answered them really well, remember Jesus at 12 was at the gate, he was answering those questions, and people were, whoa, this is amazing. He would have been one of those star students, but they were going, how in the world did he get this kind of training? And they would, they would train them to a point that they'd finally get to a place where they'd kind of go to the, to the Jerusalem seminary, the, the top school, and at that top school, they would be the top ones that would graduate, and then the rabbis would look for those and the best of the best were chosen to follow the rabbi. And here you have James. Probably flunked out early on, not that he wasn't bright. Not one of the elite students. Not only that, he had a pretty significant character flaw. He was James, son of Zebedee, whom Jesus looked at those two boys and said, Whoa! on you guys hotheads sons of thunder James that very idea of sons of thunder this name is that he he was impetuous he was fiery he was short tempered he was excitable and explodable and Jesus prayed all night and picked these guys I find it fascinating that Rabbi Jesus would pick a couple of hotheads, a guy who kept sticking his foot in his mouth, a fanatic zealot, a perpetual pessimistic doubter, a mercenary tax-collecting traitor, a thief, and a bunch of other guys who had character flaws we don't even know, which gives me great hope for you. No. (laughs) Oh, there goes my water. Jesus bypasses the Harvard business grad, the, the Juilliard trained musician. He overlooks the first round of the blue chip player and takes a bunch of walk-on wannabes. And the JV end up playing varsity. He picks people with huge liabilities. But it's not just the 12, it's all through scripture. It's the way the kingdom works. The kingdom of God, the rule of God is so different than the way that we would think about it. He picks people with these huge liability character flaws and and yet there's something that is unique about them. What I find even interesting is the three. The executive consul of Jesus is, is Peter who in him he sees a rock. James and John whom he sees sons of thunder. He sees energy that can be used in a positive way for the kingdom. He sees their flaws but he sees also what they can be in his hands. And so the lesson number two is, you know, this first one more important than doing is becoming what you're becoming. But here's really important as well. More important than your ability is your availability. Are you available? Are you willing to give 
to Jesus just who you are and what you have. Lack of training, second, you know, kind of a sordid past from the wrong side of the tracks, the wrong family name, wrong race, gender, social class, reputation, education. It just doesn't matter. What matters is availability. And Jesus isn't looking for some all-star, some MVP, some top of the class, the Stanford MIT trained individual. And you may look at your life and your character flaws and think there is no way I will even get an interview, let alone get through the first round of applications. But that's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom is looking for you, with all that you got, to do one thing. To say, I'm available. God, I I just want you to use me. I want, to use, I want you to use me in the business that I own. I want you to use me where I work with other people. I want you to use me. I'm available, God. When I, when I get in my car and I go even to the grocery store, I'm just available to you. I'm, I'm available, God, throughout the day. What I really want to do, God, is not about my abilities. I know that you're not waiting. For, I mean, I read in Scripture. I read James. If you can use a guy like James, you can use, I hope, maybe me. It was a... Meeting on Thursday night with Sean Matthews, and if you know um, her husband Bill, who the officer who was tragically killed, and she was just sharing with me that she was going on a walk, and she walks a little faster. And as she's walking, there's a guy who is maybe in his 80s or so, and she has her earbuds on, and she said, "God has been teaching me so much in this time when things have kind of been blown apart, and I just I'm learning to live more in the present." And, and that's the way Bill, I guess, lived a lot and just being available. And she said, "I was walking along, and this guy was walking a lot slower, and I I was kind of passing him. I said hi, and he said hi, and I kind of and he, and he said something." And I took my earbuds out. And he said, would you walk with me? She said, so I walked. <laughs> and we talked. And he started to share with her about how she, he had, he's a widower and lost his wife. And we told this whole story. And then he said, well, what's your story? <laughs> and he walked her home. And when he got done, he said, would you walk with me again? No one ever has walked with me. That didn't take someone with a college degree, a seminary, Bible education. It just took a person who said, I will be available to you, God, when your spirit is working and moving. And I look at this uh, third area that I just want to share with you. And it's this um, whole idea of what I call the prominence of James. And I'm going to run through this. There's a number of scriptures. and James isn't mentioned a lot, but he's often mentioned along with Peter and his brother John. And Luke 8.51 tells us about the three that go before and with Jesus to Jairus' daughter. And they're the only three with the parents. At the transfiguration, God takes the three and James has this role of prominence. We don't know a whole lot about him. We know that at Gethsemane, Gethsemane, Jesus takes the three and they go off to pray with him. We know other one other occasion where we hear about James and John, and it's when James and John go up and they say, Jesus, you know, we uh, 
you know, and it actually says in the text, the son of Zebedee, I think again, because this is their ambition which they got from their dad. Uh, Jesus, we're thinking, you know, when you get into your kingdom, we'd like the right and the left hand. And I can hear James going, I'm the older brother, I'm the, the right hand. And then you have one other occasion where you see the prominence of these guys. And here you see James and you see John. And we're told this in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. It says that at the time, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, to get ready to, you know, it's going to be exalted, this idea, which you kind of go, he's going to the cross to be exalted to, so he goes there and he says, Jesus resolutely, he set his face like flint is the Greek, uh, and set out for Jerusalem and he, he, he sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Isn't that kind of interesting? Jesus, Jesus an itinerant preacher, he said, yeah, you know, I'm send you guys ahead. And, and instead of going around like all the Jews would do, we're going to go through Samaria to Jerusalem, which he just didn't do. So Jesus sends them on ahead. They go to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. They understood, hey, man, this rabbi's coming through. We don't like rabbis. We're we're half-breeds, and we don't like each other, et cetera, et cetera. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked indignantly, oh, that's not in the text, but you can hear it, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Of course we do. That's what I came to do. Condemn and kill people. No, he he didn't say that. Jesus turned and rebuked them. How many times I wonder when Jesus is turning and rebuking them? How many times he turns and, and he rebukes me for thoughts when I'm listening? And then he and his disciples went to another village. When it comes to the nickname James and John, it was given probably either at this point or this is just included to give us the idea of who they were. Ambitious, easily angered, judgmental people. It's interesting in the Bible, this whole idea of anger. In Ephesians chapter 4, 26, it says, in your anger do not sin. And a little later it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. You kind of go, what is it? Anger is just energy. It comes into your body. You feel it. And you have a choice what to do with it. You can begin to get bitter with it. You can begin to become rageful and you can become vengeful. In fact, the most common way people deal with anger today, you know how you do it? You move to judgment. Think about that for a second. Anger comes up and what you do is you move to judgment. I think that's one of our most common paths. So I'm watching a baseball game. Anyone care to guess what team I'm watching? <clears throat> Chicago Cubs. Okay. <clears throat> it was the Cubs. And, and I actually record those games. And, and, and Grace will know I'll go down at 10.30 at night. And I'll just kind of go like two or three speed through it and stop when I see things that I want to watch, which is like a lot of them. Anyway. And I watch this play. This guy catches the ball in foul ball ter- you know, foul territory. And he's not one of the Cubs, but he's another player. It's at Wrigley Field. And the guy takes the ball. It's an afternoon game. And he tosses it to, to this little kid who's sitting with a glove with his mom next to him. And then behind him is this couple. And there's a few seats that no one was really sitting in right there. And, and the ball kind of bounces in. And it's bouncing around. And the guy behind the kid is aggressive, scurrying. And he gets it. And he grabs it. And he holds it up. He's so excited. And I'm thinking he's going to give it to the kid. Because that's who the guy threw it to. He gives it to his wife. 
my immediately kind of angry and I just begin to go, what a jerk. I'm thinking not nice thoughts. Anybody ever do that at all? Possibly, you know, go to judgment because you get, it's the easiest way to do it because it's the way Jesus said he, here's what Jesus said. You know what? Those of you who just don't think you murder, just look at your anger. It comes out in the worst way, which is contemptuous, which is judgmental ways. And so here's what I find out later. I read the next day in the paper that uh, that 12-second clip was put on Twitter and, and um, Instagram and Facebook and all the other social media things. And I'm reading this article, and it says that Fuhrer was inspired on all kinds of websites based as far away as New Zealand and Australia. People are angry and judging and just upset with this guy. And the mainstream and national and some local sites begin to carry the story. Just a 12-second clip. And everybody's getting angry and judgmental who's watching this thing. One of the, the headlines says, Terrible Cubs fan savagely steals fall ball away from young child. And it ends the story on a not-so-subtle judgment. What a piece of trash, quote. He should be banned from attending Wrigley Field from here on out. Steve Bartman all over again, if you know Cubs. Anyway. And they're from North Carolina. It was their first Cub game. And it was a celebration of their wedding anniversary. And here's what people didn't know. And eventually, the boy's mother issued a statement through the Cubs on behalf of this family that the boy and everyone else did nothing wrong. They were, in fact, grateful because he had helped get the ball, the boy a ball earlier and, in fact, had given balls out to all kinds of kids around the roll. But a 12-second clip that I saw of a guy's life made me go from anger to go, that, right? I can't, what a jerk. We all, every day, see 12-second clips of people. More important than your judgment is God's judgment. In fact, I'm really struggling to do this, and you may be as well. Get out of the judging game. That's not your call. Quit looking at 12-second clips and writing a script and sending it to another person through gossip. Anybody relate to this? I really want you to think for a second. What would tomorrow be like if you said, you know what? I'm going to handle my anger when it comes up and my response, which, see, anger, we don't even feel it. It goes so quickly. We've learned how to choose this emotion, which is really emotion that he says we're not to live in. We usually move right away. To judgment. What if you took it and you said, God, I'm going to pray that you would just bless that because I don't understand it all. This is the last thing that I want to share with you. You know, more important than 
what you do is who you're becoming and how you reorientate and reprioritize your life so that Jesus can lead you and move you into the kingdom kind of things. And, and far more important than your ability is just the fact that your hand is open saying, I'll be available. And more important than your judgment is God's perspective on things. The last is this, more important than your direction and your destination, let's put it that way, is God's destination. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward this time because we're going to sing in just a moment. But I just want to share with you, the last clip you have of the life of James is in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And it says this about him. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And he had a really cool idea. He said, let's kill James. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met the approval among the Jews, he began to think and proceeded to seize Peter. So here are the two of the three of the executive cabinet of Christ potentially going down. One's now met the sword and his head has been, because Herod likes to behead people. That's his judgment. This is 14 years after Jesus dies, crucified and is risen. And I thought to myself, as I was preparing this, I kept thinking, Jesus, why didn't you let Andrew or some other one be a part of the three? There's others who lived a lot longer than... They they just lived a lot longer than James. I, I don't get it. You ever ask the question, why? James, when he was going into this, I think he was thinking, you know, right hand going to get to a place, going to do all these, I'm going to retire. And yet, I don't think he came to this place because it was at this point in his life he realized the destination that God had for him was far more important than any that I may, he had thought or even others had thought, even that I thought. For some reason and for some way, God said, the destination I have for you is to be with me now. God's Destination is far more than important than your own, and we don't even understand some of that now. I don't know where you're at and what destination you're at and where God has placed you, but I know that he just calls you to continue to submit and let him do the work in you to become the person he wants you to be. And I just want to close on this note. We so often think the greatest trust is that we trust Jesus, Right? That's a big deal. We trust our life to someone else. Here's the big deal. He takes people who are willing to reprioritize their life, who are available to him, who say, I'm going to start loving and not judging. I'm going to let you determine my destination. And he trusts you. He's trusting you. He's trusting me. He's trusting us, guys, to bring the message of the kingdom so that others can begin to experience his goodness and his love.